Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on April 21st, 2017. Susan from Isley Branch Library discusses Goodreads for Teens. I believe everybody knows who I am, so thank you for coming anyway. My name is Susan. I work at the Isley Branch Library. Um, I am the person who orders all of the young adult literature, everything from fifth grade to twelfth, and I do apologize for the sparkly vampires. I had no idea. (laughs) But um, I have brought, I believe, only 20 books, which is rather brief for me, to share with you today. And my first one I cannot let you check out because I am taking it with me to all my um, middle school book visits, school visits for summer reading. But the name of the book is Frozen Charlotte by Alex Bell. And if there's anything teens love next to sparkly vampires and people, you know, facing dystopias and prom dresses, it is creepy ghost stories. I actually printed out a visual for the kids because Frozen Charlotte is a type of doll that was popular during the Victorian age. It did not have movable parts. It came in various sizes. Sometimes it actually came in its own little coffin. There's also a poem or a folk ballad. If you have, um, when you get home, if you go to YouTube, Google Frozen Charlotte, there's a ballad about a young woman who was going to a ball in the winter. She had a beautiful dress, and she didn't want to crush any of the accoutrements, and she wanted everybody to see how beautiful her dress was, so she refused to wear a cloak. So by the time she reached the ball, she was frozen. So there's a lot of provenance to this story. And I bring this um, because a lot of times the kids have no sense of history and they don't really realize what I'm talking about when I say like a little China doll. There's a lot of different types of China dolls. So I have a visual. But walking around in shorts all the time, they understand that. It continues on to to college because my husband's (laughs) students come to class in flip-flops and shorts regardless of the weather. And that's because a lot of people... Oh, I better put me on. Um, oh, what I have a library that? notice. It is, they're just letting me know that, that I have something coming due. So I set the, the, the stage for my book. I show the pictures because, like I said, sometimes the kids need a visual to know what I'm talking about. Frozen Charlotte is a book that takes place in England. It is about a young woman. She's hanging out with her best friend, and they're fooling around in a coffee shop, and they download a Ouija board app. And they get a strange message, they get a, you know, deadly portent, and a couple of days later her best friend is dead. And she's very much traumatized, and her parents are getting ready to go on this dream vacation they've been planning for months. It's also an academic conference, so they have to go. They decide that they're going to send their daughter to the Isle of Skye, because they have family that's in Scotland in the Isle of Skye. They're family has suffered a lot of tragedy lately um her yes they live in england they live in england i I thought i said maybe i didn't say it clearly this book does take place in england there is british slang they send her to scotland her aunt is currently in a mental institution she's had a nervous breakdown because her youngest daughter had been found frozen to death murdered possibly outside a couple of years before So she gets there. There are three cousins still living in the house, which was a former orphanage. The oldest cousin was a gifted pianist, but he um, had, there had been an accident, and he had horribly, he had burnt his hands horribly in a fire, so he's no longer able to play. 
There's another cousin who's about her age, and she, she, she seems the most normal of the three cousins. She's the one who does the grocery shopping, who does keeps the house up. And then there's the youngest cousin who is terrified of all the little frozen china dolls that they keep finding in the grounds. Um, as I said, this house had formerly been an orphanage during the Victorian era. And so it's got some really cool architectural things, but it also has these little frozen Charlottes littered throughout the grounds. And the youngest cousin believes that the frozen Charlottes are trying to hurt her. It is a mystery. It is a thriller. There is a supernatural element, but is it really supernatural or is it one of the cousins who's setting this up? Um, so, so far I think, you know, the kids have been pretty curious about this. Um, I can't let you check out this one, but I just wanted to let you know that when Deja comes home from school next week and says, Susan came to my library and, and told me about this one book about some dolls, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's something that you'd recommend that they read. When I visit middle schools, my bottom line is, is I want you to read. I don't care what you read. We believe in freedom of information, and the bottom line is, is kids love ghost stories. And it's got a creepy ghost story element to it. I tell them they can read manga, they can read comic books. I have a graphic novel in my collection. I've actually started ordering a lot of the graphic novels for Lincoln City Library. I believe it's a, a valued um, way of, of transporting um, information. So, yeah, I'm one of those librarians. I'm pretty, pretty radical, pretty heretical. But we read comic books in those big little books. There you the go. Time. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up on comic books. Yeah. Well, they're still around, and they've changed. No more Archie. <laughs> no, Archie is still around. Is Archie yeah. still around? Yeah, and there's a couple of versions. In one, they're actually battling zombies, so just FYI. <laughs> Did you do any research? She's like influenced by any English. I don't know how many different, uh, what do you say, Victorian Gothic novels how many stereotypes you touched on there? Oh, yeah. I'm reading Jane Eyre right now, personally. Oh, yeah, which was one of the first gothic with the whole mad wife and... Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they're... Well, they're... Wuthering Heights mm -hmm. and uh, Heathcliff Macbeth, and Catherine way back. deserve each other. <sighs> yeah, I was just wondering, because you started talking about that. Really. Yeah, but I, I would lose my middle school friends if I, if I launch into the gothic tropes. Oh. The Strangler Vine, for you more sedate sorts, who... <laughs> who, who don't want vampires or zombies or anything weird in your reading. Um, this is a historical mystery. I just discovered it. Um, there are three books so far in the series. It is by M.J. Carter. Later to be revealed that this is a woman writer, Miranda Carter. Um, it begins in India, and it begins with the British East India Company. And if you're familiar with your history, you'll know that the British East India Company was huge when Britons ruled the seas. Um, the book takes place in 1837. It's in India. And the British, the, the government, the East India Company have kind of switched their positions. When they first came to India to, um, you know, discover tea and spices and, and start trade with them, a lot of people embraced their culture. They, you know, learned the language. They traveled. They got to know the people. They got to know the rulers. And they, they, they respected it, shall we say. By 1837, Great Britain has become, you know, that we're, we're British. We're perfect. You should learn our language. You should be more like us. You should reject your heathenish ways and, and be us. So... William Avery is a young soldier. He is a 
a son. He's a spare heir. He's the third, so he's not really terribly important. He's not going to earn. He's not going to win the family estate. So through connections, he had some um, a family friend who worked for the East India Company. He has gained a commission. Now it wasn't a very good friend because it's not a very high commission. But at least he's in India and he has the opportunity to better himself. Um, but he is definitely of the mindset that why should I learn the language? These people need to adapt to our ways. When they become more British, they'll be better. He's a young soldier, and he's, he's pretty sharp, though. He's a good shot. He's a good writer. If he plays his cards well, he could, he could gain prominence. Well, he is chosen to help a gentleman named Jeremiah Blake. And Jeremiah Blake has been in India for a while. He has what the East, East Indi India Company refers to as he's gone native. He had married a local girl. He speaks um, several languages fluently. And a poet has gone missing, a gentleman who had written a novel of India, how one of the British women had fallen for a Raj and had been caught up in his exoticness. He's written this kind of tell-all novel that is scandalizing all of the British in India. And he's gone missing. So the government and the East India Company have decided they are going to send young William Avery and Jeremiah Blake off to find this author. Think Oscar Wilde, if you must. It's, it's not Oscar Wilde, but someone kind of scandalous like, like him. So they're going to send them off to find him. So they go off, and William shows up to travel, he's got his shaving chair, he's got his man, he's got his extra horse, he's got all of the accoutrements one would need to be a proper gentleman. Jeremiah basically travels like a native. He has a couple of guys with him, they have one horse. As they get to the different stations, they will trade horses, they're going to eat like the natives do, and he parlays with the natives. And at first, Avery thinks that he is doing everything wrong, and he's also been told by one of his superiors that he should keep an eye on Blake. So the story begins in India in 1837. Um, they are off to find this missing author. They're talking about the thuggy cult who, you know, kills people for Kali. So if you like history, if you like adventure, if you like mysteries, this book has it all. In my opinion, it is both driven by the setting but also by the people. I, of course, was, will, you know, I knew that Jeremiah Blake was going to redeem himself and that William Avery would have the scales ripped from his eyes. <laughs> That's why there's a rope on the The Strangler Vine refers to the thuggy cult. They use um, their sash to basically garrote people, and every, every murder they do is dedicated to Kali. Who's Kali? She is um, an Indian goddess. She has um, a, a necklace of skulls and, and stuff. They talk about her in the book. Um, you can Google her if you'd like. We also have books of Indian culture and mythology in our, you know, there's Shiva, um, the great destroyer. So I love learning about new places. Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. Yeah. There's, they don't eat eyeball stew, though. So, all right, I brought a biography. Who knows who this man is? Who knows who Elvis, Elvis Costello, Costello is? Yay! Okay, this man was basically the soundtrack for my high school years. He is a British musician. He comes from a long family of musicians. He is now married to Diane Krall for you jazz aficionados. That might be a point of reference. 
He has had a long career. In my opinion, he's a brilliant lyricist. His um, writing, his songs are clever. Um, and he is such a, a talented musician that he's not like just a pop musician. He has worked with Burt Bacharach. He has worked with Alan Toussaint down in New Orleans. I actually listened to the book because Elvis Costello himself reads it. So I thought that was really cool. Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink by Elvis Costello, it kind of jumps around in his life. He talks a lot about his father. He talks a lot about his grandfather. His grandfather had actually been a musician on the White Star Line. Um, he obviously was not on the Titanic. But he had been on different um, ships that would sail from Europe to um, America during the 20s, during the heyday of, of people you know, sailing back and forth. And so he comes from a long line of musicians. His father um, sang in a club. And so he talks about how his dad would bring home these songs, like these Beatles songs and these different popular musicians, things were popular in the United States, and then he would learn the songs and then he would sing them. He was on a, um, his dad was on a radio hour, and he talks about how his dad, unfortunately, um, he was not faithful to Elvis's mother. Um, Elvis's real name is Devlin, but he took Elvis Costello as his stage name. How his dad, like during the 60s, you know, took on kind of the form, I kept thinking of Austin Powers when I, when he was talking about this, but, you know, he would wear the Madras shirts and the, the beads, and he um, kind of, you know, was actually almost more hipper than his son, but yeah, thank you. Yes, yes, he channeled his inner Jimmy. <laughs> but um, if you like music, if you like personal narratives, it was. I found it to be a fascinating book. Like I said, I listened to it because Elvis Costello himself is the person who reads the book. So it's it's um, unfaithful music and disappearing ink, and there's actually a CD that goes along with it. So when he talks about the songs you can actually listen to the music that he's talking about. So I love music. I have over, I have thousands of CDs. I know, that's so old school. I actually still have my albums. Okay, sometimes when, you know, when you're at work, every day the delivery is greeted with excitement because not only are all the holds and return books coming in back in delivery, but so are the new books. New books that have never been touched except for by like, the cataloging people, by anyone else. They still smell good. <laughs> Some, we hope. <laughs> so a lot of times, like, I will pick something off the new bookshelf that I don't know who the author is, I may not know what it's about, but the cover looks intriguing. So Abandoned by Blake Crouch came in, and I thought, well, hmm, the back says, hmm, on Christmas Day in 1893, Every man, woman, and child in a remote gold mining town disappeared. Belongings forsaken, mills left to freeze in vacant cabins, and not a single bone was ever found. Dun, dun, dun. Ooh. Then, 116 years later, two backcountry guides are hired by a history professor and his journalist daughter to lead them to the abandoned mining town so they can learn what happened. Recently, a similar party had also attempted to explore the town and was never heard from again. What is going on? I know. Now the area is believed to be haunted. That was what caught me. Do, 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 do,
The crew is about to discover 20 miles from civilization with a blizzard bearing down that they are not alone. And the past is very much alive. <laughs> I was riveted. I found it to be a quick read. Um, the story does flash back and forth between 1893 and the present day. So the history father had abandoned his family basically to pursue his academic dream. So the journalist's daughter and him have kind of reconnected and this is a trip for them to kind of reconcile, to kind of come to peace with each other. And this has been his secret passion, his, his history. He's a Western history um, professor, but this mining town that went missing has always been kind of a secret passion. It is on um, federal park land. They have to get a special permission to go in. And the history professor has not been entirely honest with everyone in the party, and that's where things start to go awry. Because one of the denizens of this gold mining town in 1893 supposedly had a large sum of gold that he had hidden in his house. And that is kind of the catalyst that is prompting all of this. I thought it was really interesting. I, of course, gave it to a, a colleague to read immediately after I finished. And she was like, oh, my God. I mean, she kept texting me. like, I can't believe it. Oh, my gosh. Now this has happened. <laughs> you want to find out what happens? You might want to read Abandoned by Blake Crouch. It will not take you long. It is a quick read. You, you kind of get sucked in and, and, and pulled in behind it. So a fun read. I will give you one caveat. I was hoping for Supernatural. I was disappointed. <laughs> All right, as my first young adult book, ding, 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 ding. Well, Frozen Charlotte was also a young adult book, but you can't have that one. This one, though, is um, available. Um, this sticker here points out that it was a William C. Morris debut award, which means that the author, Calla Devlin, it's her first novel, received an award because it was a very promising first novel. And the name of the book is Tell Me Something Real. It's a historical novel, friends. Yes, it's that time. It's, it takes place in the 70s. I know. I remember the 70s quite vividly. But I'm talking to kids who have no idea at all. <laughs> it is about three sisters. Vanessa is the oldest. She's an artist. She has a foul mouth. Excuse me, Adrienne is the artist. She is, an, um, she is the one with the foul mouth. Vanessa is the middle child. She is kind of the bread or the, the, the middle who holds everybody together. She is a gifted pianist. And Marie is the youngest, and she is obsessed with saints. And you know now why I love this book. Oh, <laughs> the reason she is obsessed with saints and the reason these three sisters have grown so close, they live in San Diego, is the reason that Every few days, they have to go with their mother to Mexico where she receives illegal drug treatments with Laetril. How many of you guys remember Laetril? And, and it was not FDA approved, but it was a controversial cancer treatment. And so their mother has leukemia. She has tried everything. And so they live in San Diego already, so she has decided she's... They've been going across the border to Mexico 
so that she can have illegal Laetrile treatments to help fight her cancer. When the story begins, we find out that her mother has been um, diagnosed that she is terminal. The Laetrile has not worked. She's going to die. So uh, arrangements are being made. And their mother's illness has taken over this family. Everything is about taking care of her. The oldest sisters pick up their, their youngest sister, Maria, and they're basically, they do the grocery shopping, they do the cooking, they take care of their mother and their little sister. Their father is involved too, but he's an architect and he is working night and day and he's got a boss who basically really has his, him under his thumb. It doesn't matter that his wife is dying, he's gotta get this project done. The status quo is changed, though, when the mom decides that she's going to help one of the other families who are at this clinic receiving Laetrile treatment. They're lucky. They live in San Diego. They can come from their home. They get to go back to their home. So they offer to take this family in. It is a mom and her son, Caleb, who has also suffered leukemia. He is in remission but the mom is taking every precaution necessary, so she has decided to follow, pursue a treatment of Laetrile just to make sure that her son's leukemia stays in remission. This is when the status quo is broken up. She, Barb, Caleb's mom, takes charge. She wants to make sure that the girls have their own childhood. She puts them on a regimented schedule. They have to take, eat organic food. Um, she actually kind of calls the husband's boss and says, you know, look, this guy's wife is dying. You need to back off and let him, you know, have some time with his family. And things start to change. And she is a caring, sympathetic person. She doesn't take over the family, but she is the one who starts to smell a rat. Not everything is as it seems in this book. It's a, it's a, it's a slice of life. It's like you get a window into this one family and what happens. If you want to find out what happens though you'll have to read tell me something real by Calla Devlin I can't tell you I am sworn to secrecy I don't tell my middle school friends and I won't tell you I mean that way see this is why I have to bring donuts because you guys wouldn't come otherwise the Odyssey of Sergeant Jack Brennan by Brian Dorries is a graphic novel Brian Dorries has a um, program called Theater of War. And what he does is he uses the classic stories, the Odyssey, Antigone, and Oedipus, and all of those to help returning military people, veterans, readapt into civilian life. And so this is a graphic novel of one instance where a group of soldiers are sitting around their campfire. It's their last night in Iraq. They're going to be coming back stateside. And their sergeant tells them the story of Odysseus and his struggle to get back to his country after the Trojan War was ended. And you'll know it was not a quick trip. At Ten years it took him to get back, leaving his wife Penelope there to, you know, do the weaving and unravel it every night so that her suitors would leave her alone. So the parallels that he draws with the story of Odysseus and what some of our returning veterans face, I thought was really um, telling. And I'm going to read more about his program, The Theater of War, because I think it's an interesting 
Um, it's something we're addressing. We are dealing with the fact that a lot of veterans are coming back and it turns out that in spite of the fact that they may not have any physical injuries, they're still dealing with what happened. So they're it is suicide like crazy, or they were. I don't know if they're doing better. Um, no, you're right. It's still a very serious problem. And I, it, this may not be the only solution to that issue, but at least it's one issue, and it's addressing the fact that there is an issue that needs, that we need to be dealing with as a country and as a people. So the name of the book is The Odyssey of Sergeant Jack Brennan by Brian Dorries. It is a graphic novel. The story is told in sequential art. And I would argue that stories told in sequential art are just as valuable as stories that are told in prose. There's a certain skill set necessary to know to which panel to read next, which, which bubble goes first. And oftentimes, the, the pictures do help tell the story as well. I'm suspecting that all of you have heard this story before, Before the Fall, by Noah Hawley. This is a story that begins with the climax. It starts with a bang. The plane goes down and the only two survivors are a painter named Scott and a little boy named JJ. He swims 15 miles from the plane wreckage to the coast of Florida to get help for this, this family. The little boy. The little boy. He clings to his, his back um, and he swims and his shoulder is kind of bunged up already but he he's he's yeah. got to save him so the story actually I'm sorry it's not Florida it's Long Island my apologies I thought, I thought I, I you're right you're it's Long Island <laughs> the story goes back and forth it begins with a plane crash Scott makes it to Long Island he's in a hospital um, the federal transportation people come because it was a private jet they were flying from um, uh, Martha's Vineyard back to New York. The people on the plane were very important people. David and Maggie Bateman were owners of a major cable network, thanks CNN slash Fox. And so they're, they're big names. They had David, Maggie, JJ, their daughter Rachel, who was nine, were all on the plane. Their bodyguard, Gil, because Rachel had been kidnapped when she'd been younger, so now the family travels with a bodyguard, was on the plane. And then a couple that were friends with David and Maggie were also on the plane. They were just being nice and, and giving them a ride home. And he was an investment banker. So those are the people who go down on this plane. Scott and JJ are the only two who survive. Well, where did the painter come from? He was a, a, a friend that Maggie had made in the farmer's market, and he needed to go back. He was going to be um, having a show, and so he has all these slides that he's going to show to the, uh, to the gallery owner. And she just said, oh, well, instead of taking the bus, you know, we're flying out tonight. Why don't you come on and ride? And that's what the FDIC and the people who are looking into this. Who is Scott? Who is this nobody who was on the plane? And it's about how the media, because the thing is, is they have a... CNN slash Fox, they have this 24-hour news network that David Bateman was in charge of, and his main person was Bill Cunningham, a blowhard TV personality who has a cult-like following who likes to skew the news 
to get. Yep. Yeah. I that's who I thought of. Fake news. Fake but, news. Yep. And so that book deals with this. It deals with how the media skews things. So as the story flashes back and forth, we find out that Bill Cunningham was actually on leave when all this happened, but because David and Maggie are dead and he's not able to say anything, he comes back on air and he starts saying that this was a plot, that terrorists brought down the ship. The truth is revealed by the end of the story. And if you if you don't like your story, if you like your stories to go like chronologically, this may not be the book for you, but I found it riveting. You know, there were times when I was reading, I was like, oh, the truth has to come out. <laughs> Before the Fall by Noah Hawley. Another book that is incredibly timely and also quite um, shocking, in my opinion, was is The Knicks, and that's by Nathan Hill. Has anyone read this? It was on our little um, feed that would go across the catalog as you were looking for your books. And I had a couple who come to Isley fairly regularly. They're a husband and wife, and I, I really like them a lot. They told me, like, have you read The Knicks yet? And I was like... I have a lot of people that tell me what to read. I, I'm not the only one who's telling people what to read, guys. I have a lot. I ha Michael Connolly is on my list. I promise I will get to him eventually. When people ask me if I've read James Patterson, I just smile and said, so many books, so little time. <laughs> so I read The Knicks because this couple recommended it. And then when they came back, I'm like, oh, my God, I read The Knicks. And <laughs> so, again, this story goes back and forth. It begins in present day. It is about a politician. He's a Wyoming politician. He had been governor. He had instigated some pretty dramatic, drastic rules. And Wyoming was like, OMG, what the heck did we do? We got to get this guy out of here immediately. They basically like pulled him out. They voted him out the next term. But now he has set his hat to run for president. He's going to set America right again. So he's walking through the park. And suddenly this woman gets up from her park bench and she starts throwing gravel at him. <laughs> and, you know, of course the Secret Service surround him, protect him. And this woman is arrested. And then on every news feed, who is this woman? Who is this heretical terrorist? Who is this radical? Turns out um, her name is Faye Anderson Anderson Anderson. She has a hyphenated name. Their pictures come up. It turns out she was in Chicago in 1968. Uh -oh. There's pictures of her at protests with, with a few other people. And that's all they know. And she, she's, she's written some poetry. That's all we know about her. So then people start digging. And then we meet Sam. Sam Anderson Anderson. Sam is Faye's son, who she abandoned when he was 11. He is now a professor at a university outside Chicago. He's a liberal arts professor. And he had been a promising young writer. And they ha he had been given a book deal. And 10 years have passed, and he has not written a book. And his agent is saying, you need to write a book, or we're going to sue you, and we want the money back. And he doesn't have the money. So he finds out. The guy goes, hey, I know how you can do this. It turns out your mother is this radical who pelted this this politician with rocks we want you to write a biography of her we actually have most of it written for you but you just need to fill in a few blanks we'll put your name on it and we'll call everything good so the story goes back and forth because sam who's an adult he's in his 30s 
Hasn't seen his mom since he was 11. She abandoned the family. She had, he had no idea that she had even been in college, that she had been in Chicago. He thought that she had basically gotten married straight out of high school in Iowa and had married his dad and they had started this life. <coughs> so the story goes back and forth between 1968 and present day. It goes back and forth between Faye and what is going on in her life as a young woman who has received a prestigious scholarship to go to Chicago, to go to school, and what's going on in Sam's life. Because Sam has his own issues. He has called a student on the carpet <coughs> because she has plagiarized a paper, and she knows how to play the system. This book is a scathing look at, again, our media system, at our education system. The dean of Sam's department is a specialist in an obscure five-year period in medieval history. It's the only thing she knows. And of course, when this young woman goes to her and says that, you know, he's not letting me re rewrite the paper. I used this paper in high school and got an A on it, and I don't understand why he won't let me use it again, even though it's not her paper in the first place. And the dean supports her. Mm-hmm. So it's a story of one family, but it also has some things to say about what is going on in the world in this book. If you'd like to know more, you might want to read The Knicks by Nathan Hill. Moving back in time, The Ornatrix by Kate Howard takes place in Italy, takes place during the Renaissance, and it is about a young woman named Flavia. When Flavia was born, her mother was horrified. She had been startled by a bird. And she had looked at something that wasn't beautiful during her pregnancy. And so when Flavia is born, she has a port wine birthmark covering half of her face over her eye, and it is the shape of a bird. So they kind of keep Flavia tucked away. Her father is a tanner. They live on the outskirts of town. Her mother recovers briefly enough from this horrific occurrence to have a second child who's beautiful. And we meet Flavia as a young woman as she is preparing her, for her sister's wedding. Her sister is going to marry a young man who was made cow eyes, it could be say, at Flavia, and who actually had the audacity to kiss her. But he's going to marry her sister. And in a fit of pique, she trashes her sister's trousseau. She takes mulberries and raspberries and she grinds them into her sister's trousseau. Well, they send off to a, a convent with you and they send her to a convent not to become a nun but to help out and that is where she meets meets Gostanza. Gostanza is a courtesan. Um, she's on her third marriage sadly he died <laughs> but she has her cap set for someone else but her stepson that meddling pest is interfering with her ability to um, basically intercede between her stepdaughter and her suitor and become his suitor instead. So she is a beautiful woman in spite of the fact that she, this is her third, well, it was her third marriage. She's working on her fourth if her meddling stepson will get out of her way. Flavia becomes her, her kind of basically private maid, her personal maid who helps her with her hair. But the thing that keeps Flavia coming back is that 
Gostanza uses a white lead paste to make herself beautiful, to give herself a perfect foundation. It's driving her mad and killing her because lead is poisonous, guys. But Flavia thinks that if she can cover her port wine birthmark, her life will change. If you want to find out what happens, you'll want to read The Ornatrix by Kate Howard. Again, it was a cover that grabbed me. It was an interesting story. I read everything. So oh, what's an good. ornatrix? Yeah, what's ornatrix? Someone who helps you ornament yourself. Um, the Orphan's Tale by Pam Jenoff is a historical novel. Has anyone read, read this book? <laughs> it came across as a hold. I read the flyleaf. I'm like, oh, I have to read this book. It takes place during the Holocaust, and it involves a circus. <gasps> I'm kind of fascinated by circuses. I did not run away to join one, but I do find circuses and sideshows and, and things like that very, very fascinating. The story begins with a young woman named Noah. N-O-A is her name. I hope I pronounce, I'm pronouncing it right. She is Danish. She had made the mistake of trusting a German soldier who got her in a family way. When her father found out that she was with child, by a German soldier, no less, he kicked her out. And so she went to Germany, and I cannot remember the town, I apologize, to a home for unwed mothers that are basically giving their children up so that these perfect Aryan children, because they are half German, can become part of this new Aryan race that Hitler is hoping to create. So Noah had had the child they took her child from her and she regrets that. She wishes that she would have had the strength to, to, to keep it herself. So now she is working at a train station, basically keeping it neat. She lives in a hovel. She's cold, she's hungry. And one day as she's sweeping the area, the waiting area, she notices that there is a train car, a rail car that has been left and she hears cries coming from it. She goes over to investigate, it's winter, it's cold, there's snow. She walks over to investigate and she finds that it is a train car filled with babies. Some of them have already frozen to death, but some of them are still alive. And she picks up one little boy and she runs. The guards that come back see the tracks in the snow and they pursue her. Nobody in this story at the beginning is properly dressed, okay? The baby's wearing a diaper. She's got a thin coat on and she's running into the woods. She has no idea where she's going. There's a blizzard and she passes out. Luckily, she is found by a circus who is wintering at their, there were two families that had lived next to each other for decades. One was a Jewish circus, the other was a German circus. And this is where the other story begins. Astrid, who is Jewish, who had traveled with her family. She is an aerialist. She is a person who flies from the trapeze and does the Spanish rope where they, they have the ribbons and they do like the really cool stuff, yeah. Um, she had married a, a, a Nazi officer. And then when Hitler passed the Nuremberg Laws, he divorced her. And she went back to her family and her family was gone. But luckily, the German circus is still there. They, in spite of the fact that they were rivals, they were still friends, they're, they're circus people. He takes 
her name is actually Ingrid, but for now, for the, the intents of her time with the German circus, she changes her name to Astrid. And so she is with this German circus. The owner of the German circus is the person who has taken Noah and the baby in. And they have to hide her. And they are hiding other Jewish people in the circus as well. But they have to perform. If you, you, you know, you cannot be dead weight. So the owner tells Astra that she has to train Noah to be an aerialist as well. And so they have about an eight-week period to get her to swing from the trapeze, to be able to let go of the trapeze, to be able to catch Astrid, who will then, you know, turn her around and get her to go back onto the bar and then back up onto the bench. So the story is about this, that too, this circus about Noah and Astrid, and Astrid does not want to train Noah. She's like, she's too old, she'll never do it, but Noah is determined because she, she failed her own son, and so she has to save this baby, and she names him Theo. I am going to tell you that she does train Noah, and Noah is able to make the jump. They go on tour. They're going on tour during the war. Not everybody is welcoming them. Something happens, and only one person will survive. And you know that because in the beginning of the book, this one person who survives is going to an exhibit of circuses, of European circuses, and they go to the train car that has been cut in half so that can, people can see what these, these train cars look like, and they're looking for a clue. If you want to know more, you'll want to read The Orphan's Tale by Pam Jenna. See, I don't read just weird books. <laughs> this book is another young adult novel. It is a historical novel, though. It is called Dreamland Burning by Jennifer Latham, and it is about the 1921 race riots. Um, Greenwood, which was a African-American community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was destroyed in one night. Greenwood? Greenwood. And the author talks about how there's not a lot of books that deal with this. There, we have a couple of books in the library, but most of the books are put together by a lot of narrative, a lot of interviews, and very few newspaper articles because this whole thing was kind of swept up and hush-hushed. So, yeah, between the evening of May 31st and the afternoon of June 1st, 1921, white, white rioters looted the thriving African-American section of Tulsa known as Greenwood. After taking what they wanted, they burned the rest of the ground. Thirty-five blocks were destroyed. At least 8,000 black men, women, and children lost everything they owned. More than 1,200 homes and businesses were reduced to ash along with the churches. A hospital, a school, it was one of the deadliest race riots in the United States history. So this story is a story that begins in present day. Rowan is a biracial teen. Her mother is African American. Her father is European American. And he is from an old Tulsa family. They live in this beautiful, beautiful house. Rowan knows that she is privileged and that she has a, a a very you know unique situation they have a hired help house in the back of their home and Rowan's mom wants to make it into a guest house her husband is kind of ashamed of it the fact that like at some point in their life they had actually had hired help so he's finally won over when she says well you can make a man cave in it and he's like okay we can do it <laughs> so they're 
renovating this house. It's the first day of summer. Rowan has a job starting, so she's looking forward to sleeping late when all of a sudden the construction crew who's going to redo this house comes. They start working. She can hear them from her bedroom window when suddenly, abruptly, they stop, they get back in their trucks, and they leave. So she gets up because she's curious because they were supposed to be there all day. So she goes to find out what's going on. And when she opens the door of this guest house, she sees that there are there is a body in the foundation that they had pulled up the floor and they had found bones. They, of course, have to call the police. There's an investigation. And that's when the story goes back to 1921. If you want to find out who the body is and who, because um, the, then you meet new people in 1921 and you know that somebody is that body in the floor. And it also helps Rowan deal with the fact that she is a biracial teen. She has a very privileged existence, but it also helps her face the history of her father knows that his family faces some prejudice, but he has no idea of, about what his wife and daughter actually and African-Americans had gone through. Um, it was a quick read. I really enjoyed it, and it prompted more questions. Was he white? Yes, her father is European-American. He is, is Caucasian. All right, the moment you've been waiting for, vampires! Da, da, da. I didn't want to disappoint you. Certain Dark Things by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia is about vampires. And I found out about this book by listening to NPR, National Public Radio. They're everywhere. You can't escape them. I was driving home and they were interviewing this author and she is um, of Hispanic background and what I loved about this book is it takes place in Mexico City and basically vampires have gone public and Europe has kicked them out and every culture, every culture in the world guys has vampire legends, has vampire stories, okay? And so in the back of the book there's a glossary. So as they talk about these different vampire groups that have come to the new world to seek shelter and sustenance. You're looking mighty tasty. <laughs> Somebody get her an extra donut. This poor woman has been abused. I taste better with an extra donut in me. <laughs> I bet you're tasty no matter what. <laughs> There's a glossary that, because like she talks about all of the different types of vampires that are living in this new world. And so you kind of, you know, because I, I know a lot of vampires because I do love famed fiction, but I needed to, you know, figure out. And then it talks about what their, you know, strengths are and what their weaknesses are. But the story begins with Domingo. And Domingo is a homeless young man in Mexico City. In spite of the fact that the, the vampires have gone public, the world is facing a lot of problems. You know, people are at war with each other, unfortunately. Um, and there's a large homeless population in Mexico City partially from the fact that there are vampires and partially by the fact that there are still the drug cartels going on who are killing people who, you know, get in their way. So Domingo is a young man who has basically survived by, he is a trash picker. He goes around and he rifles through the trash for things that he can sell. And he loves to read comic books. And he loves to read comic books about vampires because, of course, you know, people are writing about these vampires that have come to their new world. He's digging in the trash, and he sees this beautiful young woman, and her name is Adel, and she is a vampire, and she comes from the Aztec tradition. So the author weaves the Aztec mythology, the gods, the um, Tezcatl, and the sacrifices, and, and all of the stuff. She weaves this into the story, and 
Adel is trying to get out of Mexico City. She's trying to get safety because a rival vampire gang has taken out her family. So it is a vampire story. It is a survival story. And it is a teeny tiny bit a love story. No sparkling. No, I can't bite you until we're married. <laughs> but I love the fact that it has European vampires. It has vampires from all cultures. And there is a glossary in the back, which I found, even though I, I've always been fixated, I still found it really helpful. I thought it was a, a nice new spin. And I hope that she writes more. I'm not maybe not necessarily continuing Adel's story, but I hope that she continues to, to be published because I thought she was a, a, a fun writer and I thought that it was just cool. Um, this book was an Alex Award winner. Alex Awards are adult books that have young adult appeal. And this book was right up my alley. My entire adolescence was spent waiting for my people to come back to pick me up um, or checking the backs of wardrobes to see if I could get through. Every Heart a Doorway by Seanan McGuire is a story about a school. Eleanor West's home for wayward children. No solicitations, no visitors, no quests. Children have always disappeared under the right conditions, slipping through the shadows under a bed or at the back of a wardrobe, tumbling down rabbit holes and into old wells and emerging somewhere else. But magical lands have little need for used up miracle children. Nancy tumbled once, but now she's back. The things she experienced, they change a person. The children under Miss West's care understand all too well, and each of them is seeking a way back to their own fantasy world. But Nancy's arrival marks a change at the home. There is a darkness just around each corner, and when tragedy strikes, it's up to Nancy and her newfound schoolmates to get to the heart of things, no matter the cost. What is not to love about this book? The fact that there are other worlds out there and that I could maybe find my people. <laughs> but Nancy and the people in the school, when they reach adolescence or when they reach an unattractive state get kicked out and Eleanor knows what they've gone through she herself had been to a parallel world had been to a magical land and came back and she made the decision to stay in our world but she has a home where she takes these children and because the parents want their child who originally went through the rabbit hole who originally went through the wardrobe they don't want this strange gawky teenager back they want their child back and so Eleanor tells them that well of course yes you know please send your child to my school and I will help them readjust some children actually do go back to their homes but some have found a shelter a haven a sanctuary and they stay but there is something going on one of the children at this home wants so desperately to get back to their parallel universe that they, that they are murdering people. This is the first book in a trilogy. It was a quick read. I, I actually kept putting it down because I didn't want it to end. <laughs> I was so sad and I cannot wait until the new one comes out. It's only 169 pages so you could literally read it in an afternoon if you wanted to. It's so good. <laughs> All right, a nonfiction book. This book won an award. It's a young adult book. And sometimes the nice thing about reading young adult nonfiction is it's a quick read. I mean, it gives you the gist of it. And this land is our land, A History of American Immigration by Linda Barrett Osborne. In spite of my fantastic, fantastical ways, I do love fantasy and science fiction, mostly because my degree is in history. 
And guys, our history is, I mean, it's sad. We cannot figure out how to get along. Not just ours. Everyone's. I meant ours as a world, as yes. a global right, population. On. Our world, because, I mean, we are living on the same planet. There is no Plan B, friends. This is it. There's no planet B. That's right. Although, yesterday, no below B. the fold. I know. <laughs> this land is our land is the history of American immigration. Turns out that, like, Benjamin Franklin did not want the Germans to come. I knew about our practices in the in the the twenties and the tens and the thirds. He he thought we have always had a history of wanting to only have like Northern European and Anglo-Saxon immigrants. We Germans were too swarthy. Luckily, my father, not my father personally, but his family got in. They came over during the Revolutionary War. I imagine they were probably Hessian soldiers. They were mercenaries for hire. My, my father's ancestor was probably a spare heir or a third son who decided there was nothing to go back to Germany for, and so he stayed. My mother's family almost didn't make it. My great-grandmother was a German-Russian. You know, they, they came over, but we, heaven help you if you're Asian, we do not want you to come to the United States. The Chinese just build our railroads, but other than that. Well, and, and they, they talk about paper sons. They talk about how that they couldn't even be citizens. This is a very, um, you can read it in a day. There's a lot more to be said. There's a lot more to read. But if you want a good overview of our immigration history, this is an excellent start. This land is our land, a history of American immigration by Linda Barrett Osborne. Anna and the Swallowmen by Gabrielle Savitt is a young adult Holocaust novel. Anna um, lives in Poland with her father. The mother is deceased, and it's at the beginning of the war. Her father is a linguist. Every day is a different language for Anna. But at the beginning of the book, the Polish government allowed the Nazis to come in and take all of the professors, all of the intelligentsia, all of the um, learned people, and Anna's father disappears. The neighbor who Anna has been staying with puts her out onto the street when he realizes that Anna's father is not coming home. He does not want to have anything to do with Anna. Because she's Jewish. Anna and her father are not Jewish. No. But her a father German. was a professor. He was an intelligentsia. He spoke fluent language. He's, he had friends who were Jewish. He had friends who were Romani. He had friends who were Armenian. And Anna speaks all these languages. Her father has never <coughs> taught her Polish because the Polish will take care of itself. So she's on the street corner. She not, she's not really sure what to do when this tall, angular man comes, and he's carrying, like, a leather doctor's bag. He goes into the shop of the neighbor who has just put Anna out onto the street. And when he comes back, the gentleman, the tall, angular gentleman, asks her, are you okay? What is your name? Where is your family? And he asks each of these questions in a different language. And Anna kind of hesitates, but then as the guy walks away, Anna chases after him. And in each language, she responds, no, I'm not okay. My name is Anna, and my father is gone. And that is how Anna meets the Swallow Man. The, the, the war isn't over by the time the book ends. But the story goes on 
for about five years. It begins in 1939. Anna is 13 when it finally ends. They are constantly on the move. And he teaches Anna how to survive, how to blend in, how not to be caught. We never know who the Swallow Man is. This book has fable-type elements about it. It's a beautifully written book, but I actually listened to it because it was an Odyssey Award winner. If you have Overdrive, if you have an iPod or a smartphone, I would urge you. It's only, I think, five or seven parts. It's a quick listen. But the language and the reader, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. All right. Neil Schusterman, young adult writer, science fiction, ooh, ah, ooh, double feature. You know I love science fiction, friends. It's hard to find good science fiction. We are not looking hard enough because there's some fabulous stuff out there, and it runs the gamut of all different types of science fiction. There is space travel. But in this story, we have basically banished death. Nobody dies anymore. Nope. Everybody lives forever, and you can reset. We could all be 19 again. But people still live in this world, and in order for there not to be population, there are people called Siths who are created, and their job is to glean some of the population. Each Sith has a quota, a number of people that are supposed to be scythe. And they have rules. Why do you call that scythe and not scythe? Is it scythe? Thank you. Scythe is the... I appreciate that. The scythe commandments. Thou shalt kill. Thou shalt kill with no bias, bigotry, or malice aforethought. Thou shalt grant an anim of immunity to the beloved of those who accept your coming and to anyone who deem you worthy. So if I glean your daughter and you try, you cannot come back on me. It's just the way it is. Thou shalt serve humanity for the full span of thy days, and thy family shall have immunity as recompense as long as you live. So families are happy to become a scythe because that means they're going to live as long as you do. Thou shalt kill no scythe beyond thyself. Thou shalt claim no earthly possession, save thy robes, ring, and journal. Thou shalt have neither spouse nor spawn. Thou shalt be beholden to no laws beyond these. So Citra and Rowan are taken by a scythe to become his apprentices. And when you become a scythe, you give up your identity and you take the name of a rational thinker. Whether it be Madame Curie or Faraday or Godard, you take on the name of a rational thinker. And Sitra and Rowan become the apprentices of Faraday and something happens and they're split up. It becomes a, a fact that they're going to have to, whoever gains the mastery, who becomes the, the, main, the scythe who's chosen, will have to scythe the other one, and they don't want to do that. And something is going on within the scythe. There's a change of ideology, and they both, including Faraday, think it's wrong, and so they have to work against it. I thought it was a quick read. It's a difficult concept to wrap your mind around it, but Neil Schusterman is a great writer, and he takes difficult concepts and puts them in a way that makes them easily understandable. If you have not read Neil Schusterman, clear your social calendar. Put him at the top of your book list. <laughs> the Invisible Life of Ivan Isenko by Scott Stambach is an adult novel. I know you don't think I read him, but I do. This book was an Alex Award, though. It has young adult appeal. And the reason it has young adult appeal is that the main protagonist in our story is 17 years old. 
17-year-old Ivan Isenko is a lifelong resident of the Mazier Hospital for the Gravely Ill Children in Belarus. Born deformed, yet mentally keen with a frighteningly sharp wit, strong intellect, and a voracious appetite for books, Ivan is forced to interact the with the world through the vivid prism of his mind. For the most part, every day is exactly the same for Ivan, which is why he turns everything into a game, manipulating people and events around him for his own amusement. That is, until a new resident comes. Paulina is a young woman. She is an orphan, and she has leukemia. She is dying, and she is sent to the major school for critically ill children to die. And she is the one who shakes up Ivan's world. Ivan and all of the children in this institute are victims of Chernobyl. There is actually a floor dedicated to children who have leukemia. Some of them survive, some of them don't. And Ivan has no legs, he has one arm, and he has no control of his facial muscles. But as the, sto the story says, he has a brilliant mind and he has escaped the world through books. And one of the, the story of how the nurse discovers that Ivan is actually intelligent, he basically, he'll like kind of slump in his chair and he eavesdrops on all of the doctors and the, the nurses. Well, one of the nurses, Nurse Katya, caught on that Ivan was paying attention. So to trick him into like revealing himself, she, he's 17 years old when he was 13, she had a picture of a <clears throat> scantily dressed young woman and Ivan's eyes were tracking it the whole time and that's how she finds out that he is, that's how she tricks him into, and she is the one who supplies him with books. And so when Paulina comes, at first he's kind of mad because she starts stealing his books and so she, he steals her diary. This book has a tragic ending. It also has a checkered past. If you go to Goodreads, there is a, a person who reviewed it who feels that the author took advantage and of people who might be autistic or, or crippled. I, when I read the story, Ivan's voice caught me up so much that I didn't pay attention. I worked in human services for eight years, guys. I worked with people who were developmentally disabled and autistic, and I, it, it just didn't cross my mind that I didn't think the author was taking advantage of, of the characters. I thought it was just a story. It's just the story that he's made up. And I liked Ivan. And it talks about Belarus, and it talks about Russian history, and it talks about Chernobyl and the effects. All right. Pat Leach got me to read this book. On Thursdays, I go out to lunch at noon, and when I get in my car, her book talk on NPR is on. And I listen to it, and she was talking about Maud's Line by Margaret Verbal. And this book takes place in Oklahoma during um, the 20s and, and the 30s, during the Depression. And it's about a young woman named Maud who lives in um, Oklahoma. It's 1928. She is a member of the Cherokee Nation. She and her brother, Lovely, and their father live on this allotment of land, and they're surrounded by families. And Maud is very smart. Her teacher, um, one of the neighbors, lends her book. She's an avid reader. She's a young woman. She's in full possession um, of, of all of her facilities, and she's beautiful. And it, she's also in possession of her sexuality. So a traveling salesman comes through. They kind of like each other. There's a lot going on in the story. And it's just you get to kind of look at about a six-month period of Maud's life, of what's going on. 
there is a rivalry with a neighbor. When the story opens up, their cow has been killed by this neighbor and Maud's father wants revenge and Maud really is trying to keep this secret from him because if it could escalate the, the rivalry, the feud between the two families. So she's dealing with that. Her brother Lovely is kind of a fae creature. He's, he, he always has his head in the clouds. He's always thinking about things and he's, he's not really one who's grounded in reality. I mean, he's, there's nothing wrong with him. But he's just, you know, too much dreaming and not enough just living in the real world. And so she's following the story and she meets this traveling salesman and one of the things that he has is books. And that's what initially kind of draws Maude to him, not the fact, too, that he's pretty easy on the eye. Mm -hmm. If you want to find out how the story progresses, yeah. um, you'll want to read Maude's line by Margaret Verbal. No vampires, no zombies, told in print, and just then... Just a regular book. Just a regular book. Behind the Throne by K.B. Wagers is a fun science fiction read. Yep, you can even have fun science fiction reads. It is about a young woman named Halimi Bristol. She is the third in line for the throne. But when we meet her, she is off in space. She has her own ship and crew, and she is a gun runner. And these two trackers, Emery and Zinn, have come back to bring her back to her home planet because her sisters have been killed, and she is the only heir left in the throne. Her mother is still alive, but her mother be is behaving oddly. So Hale, which is her nickname, doesn't want to come back. At first she tries to escape, but they convince her that she has to come back because there is corruption within the palace. And somebody within the palace is the people who killed her sister and her um, sister's daughter. And someone, as she comes back and as she gets involved, she realizes that someone is poisoning her mother, which is why she is behaving erratically. So it is a quick read. It's fun. Um, what I also liked about it is that the culture that this planet, the colonists who came to this planet were from India. And so the dress is inspired by Indian dress, the, um, the music, the art, and even the language and the food. And they talk about, you know, she's back and she's kind of happy to see people, but she doesn't know who she can trust because somebody is killing her family. And so she reluctantly assumes the role as the heir. So I love the once a gun runner, now heir to the empire. <laughs> it is a truth universally acknowledged the single man in possession of a fortune is in want of a wife. In spite of my frivolous science fiction vampire loving ways, I love Pride and Prejudice. And I have read it with zombies and without. And this one has dragons, griffins, and wyverns. But it is a Pride and Prejudice wannabe. Um, it is a story about a young woman named Eliza Bentang. Her youngest sister was killed by a griffin. And the people of Maryborn Manor have scraped together the money to bring the dragon fighters to rid their, their section of their world of griffins and wyverns. And so, of course, she meets Alistair Darrod. He's one of the dragon riders. He's haughty. He's proud. They lock horns, but you know in the end they're going to end up together. If you love Pride and Prejudice in all its ways, shapes, and forms, I give you Heartstone by L. Catherine White. And my last book 
Is the Sun is Also a Star by Nicola Yoon was a Michael Prince honor book. I loved it before it won the award. This book I sent to many, many people for Christmas. It was a present because I loved the story. It's a story that goes back and forth between two young adults, and it takes place in one 24-hour period. Natasha, whose family is from Jamaica, and they are illegal immigrants. Her father came over on a work visa and stayed, has gotten picked up because of a DUI, and it's been found out that he is an illegal alien. So him and the entire family are being sent back to Jamaica. We also meet Daniel. Daniel is the second son of a Korean family. And Daniel's mom and dad want him to become a doctor, just like his older brother, who is going to Harvard. Daniel kind of resents his older brother. His older brother is kind of a jerk. So he wants to go to Yale. So we meet him on the day of his interview with a Yale alumni. He is, has a good chance of getting to Yale. But that is not what Daniel wants to do. Daniel wants to be a poet. These two young adults who do not know each other meet on the streets of New York. Natasha is on her way to the immigration office to make one last final plea for her family, and Daniel is on his way to interview to get into Yale. On their way, it is their story. It goes back and forth between them, but the people who they meet and touch, their story is told too. So the woman who is the guard at the federal building who waves Natasha through, you find out about her. The immigration lawyer, lawyer who Natasha meets, you get to meet her. Daniel's older brother, who really is a jerk, you get to meet briefly. You get to briefly meet their father. All of these people are involved in Natasha and Daniel's story, but it is their story. And it takes place over one 24-hour period. If you'd like to find out what happens you'll want to read the sun is also a star by nicola yoon it is her second book her first book everything everything has just been made into a movie and that's it friends thank you i hope that you guys have a fabulous lunch we hope you have enjoyed this podcast from lincoln city libraries if you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook. Mm-hmm.